Welcome to Terragrams. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the 28th Dispatch of Terragrams. Terragrams has reached a critical impasse in its evolution and is in aid of assistance. To continue, Terragrams must rely on contributions from listeners like you. Your support will assure that you, your colleagues, studio, faculty body, students, and classmates can continue to benefit from our growing and open archive as well as our forthcoming conversations. All donations count. Please help. Visit our website at terragrams.com for more information. Today in Dispatch 28, we are joined by the Swiss-German landscape architect Stefan Rotzler. Rotzler studied history of art at the Zurich University before becoming a gardener. Following this hands-on experience, Rotzler opted to study landscape architecture at the ITR Technical School in Rappersville, Switzerland, where he graduated in one of the first classes of the newly created professional program. After graduation, he worked with the town planning office of Zurich for a few years and then opened his own office. In 1989, he began his collaboration with Matthias Krebs, who together have made projects for gardens, public spaces, sports facilities, and infrastructure, primarily in Europe. In 2007, the Swiss publishing firm Nigli released the first monograph of the Rotzler-Krebs collaboration. Rotzler has taught in the landscape program at Rappersville and has participated widely in international competitions, juries, and workshops. Terragrams is very happy to welcome Stefan Rotzler. Stefan, it is a pleasure that you can take the time to join our show. Welcome to Terragrams. I said, here, take a few dollars. I'm sorry this happened to you, just, but just leave me alone. I'm not the person who, who deposited us.
Could you describe the garden itself? What was it made of? What were its components? A very simple reconception. The garden was on a flat land in on the um, east side of Lake of Zurich on a flat ground composed by the gravel of Gotthard Tunnel in the 1870s. They didn't know where to go with all this gravel and well, they did the um, lake borders of several lakes in Switzerland and that's where this exhibition uh, afterwards uh, uh, took place and Kramer decided to, was invited by two young chaps, Neukholm and uh, Baumann, uh, to do a little creation. They gave him this name, a Garden of Des Poeten, and he took some earth, created several pyramids, a mound of earth, a small, no, a flat water basin, and uh, some concrete slabs, no trees, no bushes, just uh, one pot with red geranium. <laughs> is it ironical or is it uh, more the yin-yang thing um, relating to the many, many flowers of the 59 Garden Show? You don't know. So it wasn't very characteristic of his work? No. There obviously was a break in what he had done before. His earlier garden work is... Uh, very much into flowers and Kramer had come to a point before 55 where uh, he found out hmm, I don't get any longer with these plants I, I could repeat and repeat but um, there's no more challenge so he was very good with the plants no he was excellent with plants and for him it was a pleasure to well, God, to do the um, <clears throat> execution of, of gardens in front of the owners, that's, uh, that's known. He took one blue flower, put it there, and then um, in a way of a, of a theater play, uh, brought a tree and then brought a stone. So he was a kind of a, a regisseur of the creation of these gardens. So that was showtime. And, um, well... The Garden des Poeten Poeten is showtime on another another level. It was controversial before. There was discussion before the ex expo to not build this this piece. What gave it the impetus to actually get constructed? Well, that's where the story of my family comes into Kramer's life and probably my relation to the modern landscape. Uh, architecture is based. My father was the art director of the garden exhibition and uh, when the gardeners decided no, uh -uh, no way, we will not construct this abstract garden with no plants. It'll be a shame, a national shame. Then my uh, father as the art director said, well, we consider it a piece of art and we do it. And uh, that was before 68. He was the authority in arts, and uh, they did it. And that's how this strange relation, or this uh, specific relation of garden work and art piece started and had the chance to 
be built and um, then to be discussed and then to be demolished. And was there a lot of controversy during the expo or after the expo about this exotic corner in the festival? Well, we uh, found out that there was quite some controversial in the newspapers. Some people liked it and thought it's, that's the beginning of something new. It's a new way of doing gardens because it's unfenced, it's open, it's, uh, well, you, you enter it and by entering the garden it gets physical and your physicality and the garden's physicality amalg amalgamate. Um, so that was discussed at the time. So um, that's very much land art thinking. And of course, there were the uh, journalists and uh, well, the public uh, didn't care about uh, what is there. So it's a, it's a mistake. It's um, too abstract. So there was a lot of mm -hmm. discussion. Mm -hmm. Caused red heads and um, by doing this exhibition 50 years later I hope or we hope that again there is some red heads and the uh, people discuss violently hmm. about landscape architecture and how abstract it can be and how radical it can be. Does the project still seem controversial today? Yeah, people uh, coming in here in the architectural forum, of course, come to see the exhibition. There's not much of controversy, really. I hope there will be more, but uh, that's my hope uh, that didn't fulfill. Did this work in Kramer's career signify a change in the way he, he developed his, and designed his gardens? Yeah, I think it, it did. Um, his work developed along exhibition gardens. He did every 10 or 20 years there was a garden exhibition and he was present at these gardens. Some of them, not all of them are extreme in a way. They are extremely ugly or extremely stupid <laughs> or extremely, um, well, extremely earthy. And the, the, the last, no, the second last pro project he did uh, in Hamburg in 63, it was only concrete. So that was also caused uh, quite a lot of trouble. And then the last exhibition project he did was IBA in Berlin in the, hmm, was it in the 70s? Um, so. He somehow developed along these exhibition projects. It's a, well, it's like a, a musician. He has, a, he rehearses and then he has concerts and develops along the concerts, maybe. Did his tactics infiltrate into his private gardens or his parks? Yeah, it did. It surely did. The Garden des Poeten, I think, is the beginning of something new in his life. And, um, there is private gardens in the same manner, of course, private people want to have their sitting ground and their bench and the swimming pool, but these elements are present. And the spirit, the radicality of the spirit is uh, visible and feasible also, yeah. So at the end, end of 
Grama's career. In his retirement, he turned over a number of gardens to you, a young practitioner, um, just coming out of the school of Chappasville, and you were to inherit this extreme tradition or spirit. How did you how did you handle that as as a as a green, a young, a new professional? I didn't realize what uh, what happened at the time. A fortune or fate? Huh? Yeah, I got these um, two letters by architects telling me I'm the one to continue with this project, and I was just at the very beginning of my professional career and thought, okay, why not? It's jobs. Um, I do it. He had begun the, the two, it was two gardens. He had begun the conception of the parks, of the gardens, but there, there wasn't much. So I um, started completely new and I made every mistake you can make <laughs> as a young professional in these two gardens, every mistake. Instead of using a normal stone, I used a redstone instead of uh, giving a close look to the topography I changed topography in a strange way and so forth the plantation was completely wrong everything was wrong well it's not bad doing your first gardens for for an enemy <laughs> and so I punished these uh, Owners and um, well punished, not in a, in a literal sense. And three or four years later, the garden was uh, changed or was redone by a, by another colleague. So there wasn't much damage, but a lot uh, to learn. I mean, learning is by making mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think if you're not making mistakes, you don't learn. Mm -hmm. The problem is who pays for you mistakes do you pay yourself or does your boss pay or who pays for these mistakes so i didn't realize at the at that time what it had meant to uh, be the well to have this inheritance of of two gardens but there's still uh, some of the tools he had in his office the ooh, the optical instruments to um, level the grounds. The surveying equipment is still used in our office. It's from the dates from the 30s, mm -hmm. but uh, it's still uh, it's, uh, in, in functions. And some other optical instruments uh, are still used in our office. So that's nice having this memory. And then, of course, it was the it was more the well the images and, and the words. This old man. Um, yeah, it gave to me, um, for example, the, the, the image of a, of a well, rather big and <clears throat> voluminous man sitting at the table doing his sketches and pushing sketches away from him. So it was very physical, the way he uh, did sketches and his office was full of sketches. I mean, it's not very serious. Sketches are always something to throw away, and um, that probably gave me all well, an intention or an idea of 
yeah, inventing, destroying, throwing away. So that's what it's all about. Uh, designing is about deciding, and deciding means saying yes or saying no. Do you still carry the weight of his past? And the weight of this transi the transition from the end of his career to the beginning of yours? Are you, are you regularly reminded of, of Kramer, the professional? No. I mean, uh, by doing this exhibition, for 50 years later, of course, I had to re-go mm -hmm. through all these memories and uh, what maybe like a psychoanalyst, I mean, you go through a story again and then you work on it and you can get rid of it. So maybe I get rid of it. <laughs> Not too much, hopefully, because, uh, well, it's uh, very accurate, the thoughts he um, had. In 1978, you graduated from the technical school in Kappersville. And I believe, if my memory serves, you were one of the first graduating classes in the program of landscape architecture. Who founded the program? Who were your classmates? And what's going on with the first band of landscape architects now? The, the school was founded in the 70s by the profession of the landscape architects. And uh, the first professor in design was Burno. He had come from Berlin. Well, he wasn't really a big help to us, to the young students who wanted to reinvent the world. This uh, old chap in the, well, in his 50s uh, manner of designing. I remember we had a very small class. We were six guys only in our class. Uh, three of them are gardeners. Uh, one of them has disappeared in a, into another profession, and so there's two left who are in the in the field. Would you keep in touch? Yeah, we meet irregularly. I mean, the world is not that big in Switzerland, so you have no chance. You meet each other again. Who are they? Zuber is in uh, Bern. He's in the Bern administration. And, um, well, that's the one I meet. The others do something else, or one of them is a, has his own firm as a gardener. Yeah. Before Hapisville, I'm going to go backwards. Um, you studied history of art at the Zurich University. Then you went on to be a gardener. Do you look back and see these three years of time as influential or formative? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I'm my family is on a on an art historian base, so this uh, meant looking, it meant uh, visual arts. I mean, uh, art is about taking your time, looking at something, looking at it very closely, and that's what I probably learned in these years and what I learned from my uh, father, giving it a very close look without saying, no, I like it or I dislike it, just looking and taking this time to see what is there. 
Um, but uh, I somehow got sick of studying uh, history of arts. To me, it was much too unphysical. And um, well, that was the hippie shake time. You had the <laughs> longer hairs and flower power on your bicycle. And uh, during these years, there was a change. Uh, I decided to become first gardener and then study the uh, landscape architecture. So it's both on the visual visual background and on the well of the on the on the physical background of a young man who grows up and thinks, well, it's not all about intellect, it's about physicality. Life is about physics. And that's here I see a little relation. You didn't ask me, but I um, it's a nice uh, well, a nice moment to, to bring it up. I think there's a, a good relation between pop music and landscape architecture. As pop music, well, Madonna sings, I'm a physical girl. Is she singing it or who, who does? Well, never mind. She sings about physicality and it's loud and it's wild and sometimes it's rough. And that's three or four points. Um, you can bring up talking about pop music that uh, also make part of uh, the profession of landscape mm -hmm. architecture. It's about mud, it's about dirt, that's where it all begins. Mm -hmm. But if we look at some of your gardens, some of your parks, your landscapes, although there's a wildness, a roughness, a loudness to them, there's also a uh, minimalism and a control, uh, almost a precise measurement to them. How do you balance the two aspects of your, of your work? Well, I think minimalism is a well is a, a point to to start with. Minimalism is uh, was related to concept, conceptual art, and conceptual art means it's uh, very reduced to um, three or four statements. It's not all. It's not. Um, well, it's, it's reduced, and uh, reducing <clears throat> contents and reducing ideas, I think that's what it's uh, all about. And reducing means um, it allows you to create a picture, and creating a picture allows you to photograph it. So there's a strong relation between um, creating these strong images and having strong pictures from uh, what you did. There comes in the world of medias, of um, publications. I sometimes ask myself how much media generate your design? Am I creating pictures for media? Am I creating something that looks nice in a book? Or what exactly is the point about it? But I don't think you can separate between what you design and um, how well how it's published. That's a very very strong relation. 
minimal projects or minimal thoughts can be reduced to um, one or two or three sentences. I used to tell students, it's a good garden or a good conception if you can explain it to your grandmother on the telephone. <laughs> so that brings in all the, uh, this, this media aspect. Mm -hmm. Say it loud, say it in a short way and um, tell someone who has a, whose uh, capability of, of hearing is not that strong. But aren't you overlooking the sensuality of place and the experience of place if it gets boiled down to media and publication? Even through video, there's a certain detachment of place. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, I was. Well, it's also a certain irony between uh, no about what I what I said. There's a well. I should say there's a a debate between the Dutch way of creating, of designing uh, a landscape by just doing sometimes stupid, simple uh, things. Best art, for example, to me is a media or a PR agency and not the landscape architects. And, um, well, Fortunately, in our country, in Switzerland, it's uh, well. We have a different culture of of designing. We have a, a different landscape, and the product uh, is 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 very different. So there's a. I think there's a separation between the Dutch way of over designing and doing well. These uh, these two things you can explain to your grandmother very quickly and to the complexity of uh, our culture in, in, uh, in design and it's different so you got the point of irony I had in my uh, previous little statement what do you think drives the intense desire towards creating minimal landscapes here in Switzerland if you agree with if you agree with that as a generalizing statement well it's a long history of graphic arts uh, that are or were famous in the 30s in the 40s it's a tradition in architecture um, that uh, well still is more or less accurate the 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 Roots to it certainly are in, in, in other professions or, in, or are in other arts. How does the work and the influence of Dieter Kienast relate to the notion of minimalism and the force that it has in the profession today? Well, it sure, it sure does. We talked about heritage. Kramer for, Kramer for sure is a grandfather. Or uh, yeah, it's not. He's not the father. He's a grandfather to us. He was a grandfather to Kinas as well. I think that's the that's the root of this kind of uh, thinking. Is is um, is Kramer and Kienast was a very uh, clever and very accurate uh, designer, and he uh, invented the profession in our. 
country, that's, uh, that's for sure. He came as a professor to Rauperswil and then uh, well, also had several changes in his life. He started with, if I'm correct, with um, his doctorate was about uh, reeds in Castle in German towns and about what? Weeds and weeds. moss and mm-hmm. all the weird uh, plants that uh, exist in towns mm-hmm. where people walk and spit and piss. Mm-hmm. So that's where he starts. So a very urban uh, way of looking at uh, nature or at urban nature. That's, uh, that's his beginning and he brought in this, uh, this urban aspect into our country and um, our generation, my generation, is very aware that we are living and working in an urban area. Mm. And that's definitely the idea and the, um, the result of what Kinosht told us, told the profession about uh, what he told the architects. So there's the urban aspect mm. uh, coming in. And that's different from Kramer we talked about earlier. Because Kramer, Kramer really did gardens in a residential, in a residential um, manner and well there's some urban projects but it's not the, the main point is, mm-hmm. isn't urbanism. Today it seems obvious that landscape architects practice in the city. Yeah. So there's a real transition that's occurred over the past three generations. And that's um, to add something. Isn't it interesting that the, the profession develops and spreads out? The more urban this country gets, the more there is a necessity for landscape architecture. That's interesting. And, well, in a way, it's clear as uh, space disappears or gets uh, narrower. The estimation of space is higher and um, it's more important to, how shall I put it? Well, in fact, much of our work is no longer in the residential and it is <clears throat> more so in the urban today. In the urban. <clears throat> it's always only about the urban. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, it's metropolitan, not the way it's received by people or um, but uh, but the reality is <clears throat> really urban in, in this country. I mean, it's yeah, it's a metropolitan area, and the parks in metropolitan area are the constant aspect, the, the eternal aspect, and uh, the built disappears and buildings are crumble and are destroyed, but the open spaces remain. So that's what I. Meant. In Switzerland, we're fortunate to have an incredible landscape. It's high, we have a highly diverse agricultural territory. We have sublime mountain ranges. We have archetypal villages. However, in formulating a contemporary practice, a contemporary practice of landscape architecture within this framework, has it been difficult for you to fight or combat this traditional, uh, what 
could be a disposition towards a traditionalism and conservatism and um, conventionalism regarding perceptions in the landscape? I don't think it has been very difficult as um, what well, there's an economic point to it projects buildings and investments are sold with the aspect of landscape architecture this means if they well and are named after after landscape for example Glot Park near Zurich that's a park and the whole area is sold with the idea of a lake and a park so uh, this profession is um, very close to the economy mm. and uh, if the landscape is good the project can be sold it's different from from other uh, projects well that's a that's a strong uh, strong value in the economy do you have trouble selling your modernism or your what could be a more radical idea or is it easier to do today than it was in 1959 when Kramer or your father had to sell the idea to the rest of the uh, Expo administration? I think it's easier. Well, there's a field we're all working in and uh, well, a field or a machine if you want and this machine works through competitions and works through well workshops and test planning and there always has to be someone winning and if there's a, a winner there's people to lose and if there's a winner there's someone to judge you so this competent competition aspect is rather important um, today and you have to be able to compete in this uh, in this struggle this uh, is a pleasure for me or for us as an office to uh, be part of this uh, competition struggle but uh, you're right I mean uh, there's always the well, the mainstream aspect and uh, the aspect of outstanding uh, projects probably the longer you work the more um, people want you for what you do or they know that um, taking you they can expect something or they uh, or they want you because they know that there isn't a traditional work coming out of mm your office. Do you think it then makes it harder for young design offices to break into the field? I don't think so. Well, there's not that many professionals in the professionals in the country. Well, we all have a, I think, uh, we all have a good relation and if he does a good project, this helps me and if we do a good project, it helps someone else and that's great for for younger people to come in of course there's always the the aspect of who knows whom and um, what kind of relations do you have to the people with the money of course that's in uh, times of 
harder economics. It uh, can be harder for young guys to come into this uh, professional fields. But, uh, well, many of the young guys win competitions and uh, that's how they get their jobs. You were listening to Terrograms and our guest is the Swiss landscape architect Stefan Ratzler. You've been running your office, now a joint uh, collaboration with Matthias Krebs for 28 years. Still a young practice, mm. in a way. What kind of advice do you give to the younger practitioners who are, who are trying to launch their, their studios? I tried to give this advice when teaching at ETH, and uh, one of them is being simple, being recognizable. One of them is um, being able to communicate what you do. That, I think, is the most important and the, the most difficult thing. When in our office, um, for a certain time, we forced to people to explain projects in three minutes or in five minutes to the others. And that is extremely difficult. If you're so close to a project and so familiar with everything, every aspect in the project, and then uh, have to explain it in three minutes, well, that's hard work to be done. Communicate or uh, write down what you do, if you can write it down. Uh, and if you can express it in words, orally, then um, your thoughts and the, the projects really uh, cling together and there's no, well, nothing unsaid in the, in the projects. Would you attribute your success in competitions towards the strategy? Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's uh, one of the points in, uh, in success. And the other point is, I like um, young um, professionals to be in juries. And I always enhance um, investors to take young people into juries because then you realize or they realize how decisions are taken. Mm -hmm. And generally in competitions, I think uh, professionals, uh, our profession, works too much. They go too much into detail and going into details forces you to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And mistakes evoke questions mm -hmm. and questions in the, in the face of competition are dangerous. So would you say the more you do competitions, the less time you spend on them? Eh? <laughs> well, that's an ideal, um, that would be an ideal thing, but uh, generally you're right, the best competitions, some of the best competitions are um, very quickly drawn and then are strong or dirty or pop songs in a, in a good uh, manner. Yeah. And then uh, you you're in a competition and it never ends. You don't find a way out, and you um, do some research about this, and you change and you change again. So this is uh, this happens, mm -hmm. and you never know in advance. You never know. Mm -hmm. 
I wish you would. I'm in a competition now. Mm. Endless, it's endless. We find it, we throw away, and um, I could give this advice. We just found out, don't work too much on things <laughs> I could give to myself. Hmm. What are you working on? What's the competition? It's a big competition for a new urban development near Bern. It's called Wankdorf, where the national football grounds are oh. near Bern. A very difficult one. What are, the, what are the difficulties that are posing you today on the project? Well, finding out the two or three points the, the project is about. It's about something entire, something integral, and it's about um, parts, and it's about how these parts and the whole work together, how separate can the parts be, and how are they um, related, or how are they, um, what is it that brings these, uh, these parts together? So it's about the whole and, not the detail, the whole and the parts. How will you know when you have the whole and the parts all together? Yeah, this afternoon we'll finish the competition and uh, <laughs> I think we'll, uh, we have it now. So it's uh, so it's getting printed tomorrow. Yeah, not tomorrow, but uh, next week it'll be it'll be printed. No, when you have these uh, well, showering in the morning or, or getting up early in the morning. Oh, I have to tell you that uh, I'm living near Zurich Airport, and every morning two past six, we have these damn airplanes flying in from the south right over my roof and um, that made me change my life or change the rhythm of my life I'm awake when these planes come and then I have the best minutes or the best uh, hour uh, of the day with my coffee and the shower and in these moments I know ah, it's okay or I realize eh, we are still struggling mm with Wankdorf, but um, it doesn't bother me anymore, so probably we're in the, in the end of finalizing and printing. Many of the competitions are heavily scripted and strictly regulated. Do you make it a practice of following the rules to a T, or can you break out of that and introduce what can be a new idea and actually an improvement to the codes that have been set down by planners before the competition has been organized? Well, in many cases we realized that, uh, be it um, ourselves or, or others, the guys that do not respect the regulations, they win. Because they find the point, well, I can put it another way, the, um, a program or a competition is written down because there's a conflict. And the way people um, see these conflicts and describe these conflicts, that makes the program. And uh, going back to the <clears throat> main issues, to the main questions, maybe makes clear that the question is wrong. 
that's what Günther Vogt in the exhibition we are sitting in uh, says, well, it's all about asking the right questions. And if these questions in a competition program are wrong, then obviously the answers are wrong. So I don't take programs serious. I mean, you, you have to fulfill what um, you're asked to uh, give in, but uh, don't be, don't cling too close to what to, is written down. You need to say, stay slightly suspicious. Slightly suspicious, yeah. Subversious, exactly. <laughs> and radical, too. Well, radical is an interesting uh, word. I mean, I don't want to go too much into semantics, but uh, radical means, uh, well, the word goes back to the Latin and means roots. So being radical is going <laughs> to the roots. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not a bad point. Like a beet or a radish. Radish. Radish is the same word. Radish is... Uh, well, that's a, a little red thing. Um, well, it's in the earth and, well, it's sharp. Mm -hmm. Being sharp, radical and red. Who is Matthias Krebs and how did you meet and what are your roles in your studio, Ratzler Krebs' partner? Matthias Krebs is a little younger than me. We met at the school. I was his expert, diploma expert, and I was extremely touched by the way um, he finalized his diploma. It was very light and very intelligent. And it was on a strange brown piece of paper. So that touched me. <laughs> the brown paper and the way um, well, he took things serious and at the same time was a little well, laughing about himself and maybe about me. And um, he wore nice shoes. <laughs> so that's the, the other point. The nice shoes and the, the good project brought us together. He was in my office and then became a partner. And. How did you know it was time to create the partnership? Well, that's uh, one of these office. moments physically, you know, you have to do it. I had, well, several partnerships, two of them broke up because there was useless discussions about anything. And with Matthias, we, of course, we have hard discussions. That's uh, normal, but... Uh, we never had discussions about uh, these stupid questions, who cleans the office and all the, all this, uh, all these rubbish questions. We're uh, three partners now, so the two of us are more um, design or creative directors and we have an organizational director in the office who is more in charge of uh, the contracts, the money, the organization, the risk management, and um, that's really nice. The third Having pillar. This, the third pillar, as you call it, that's, that is great. Mm -hmm. It definitely 
It wasn't my thing in the beginning, this third uh, pillar, but it's great to have it, absolutely great, as it creates freedom and new possibilities. It takes a certain scale of operation to, to have yeah. a third pillar. How big are you now? It's, uh, we're about 20 wow. people sitting in winter tours. So since 10 years? This is a growth. Well, it's uh, been growing slowly, slowly, and getting bigger never has been a well an issue. I mean, it happened. You have projects, and uh, you have another project, and it's big, and it's um, there's a new thing, and you win a competition, and that's how slowly, slowly we um, had to spread out and it's great being 20 people is great i mean it's not a factory it's uh, almost a brand <laughs> maybe not or maybe not yet but it's nice you can work on bigger projects and well you can do it quick that mm -hmm. is great what do your colleagues bring to the work what do my colleagues bring to the work? The partners or the... Everyone else. Everyone. Well, it's, um, it's all about chemistry. I mean, uh, everything that happens or is said is part of the uh, design-finding process. So there is a very flat hierarchy. And, um, well, I can say it. I don't know what my... More people in, in uh, my office would say about it. They'll tell you soon. They'll tell me and say, you're a liar. <laughs> you're blind, chap. No, whatever is said uh, is taken serious and every proposal is, uh, at first glance, is a good proposal because you have to give it a very close look and uh, you have to find out about the potential and yeah, and to us, maybe that's uh, that's uh, something specific for our office. Design goes through every phase. I mean, we're not a Dutch office doing the wonderful sketch and visualization, and that's it. But um, well, we think conception goes through every phase. Um, building is. Creating the, the the execution of a garden means design goes on, and bringing in design um, in every phase. That's uh, what makes the good project. So I wouldn't want to have an office just designing, and then whoops, we don't care who does it. But what happens think, with it? Do you really think West Eight? runs their work like this? You're being very critical on the Dutch. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you have to differentiate or, or have to see or, or recognize your own, own point and maybe in my, um, the way I uh, express what I think is important, I have to find a point. It's like Pythagoras saying, give me um, give me this one strong point in the world and I can lift the whole world up. So don't take it too serious. 
I mean, it's uh, different ways of looking at the same questions, and the cultures are, of course, different. How do you recognize in your office when a good idea is born? And then, a parallel question, do you feel like you have a responsibility or a burden to invent? To be inventive? To invent. Well, invented, mm, that's a uh, hard questions you give me. Well, knowing the, 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 the first one, finding out when um, something is at the, at the climate, at the at the climax well I think this is uh, this is physical you I don't know how do I realize it or how do we realize it hmm I have to think about it but um, definitely there is a point about it because uh, there is offices that never stop changing remodeling that's not the, the way we work. Um, there's points when we say that's it and we don't touch it anymore. I think it's the, um, when you feel that a certain energy flow goes through a project. It's not this and that and it's not additional and all the, the, the parts communicate, the part of the project communicate and it's emotional, then probably the moment has come when we say, puff, stop it, that's it. We do it and it's okay, or it's being built. And then you always realize when things are built that uh, things can be wrong. <laughs> so it's about not being anxious um, to see your projects in reality. Why not making mistakes or what? taking risks? It's not the it's not the last to to uh, make mistakes, but uh, maybe the last to take a risk. Do you think that accepting mistakes is about partly about growing up? And what does it take to grow up? And do you feel like you have? Hmm. I feel I have grown up. Yeah, that's another one. Maybe the opposite happens. Being um, grown up too much means uh, you're blind to what is emotional and you're blind to what a child could do or you're blind to the um, real basic things. So I hope I'm not too grown up. But uh, still, I'm a child that uh, has its lust to dig in the earth and to play with things. Your work is fun, in a way. Why do you care to make making landscape or to make landscape fun? And what do you think makes it that way? Hmm. Well, taking an example to uh, give myself time to 
um, to think about your question. We did a, it's not directly the answer, but uh, it goes a little bit around. We just finished a, a big job for a very, very, very dense um, um, urban construction. It's extremely dense. And well, there was the question, hmm, how can people live here feeling they're living in a ghetto? And we used to create these gardens. Now it's the first um, season we took not only, but we took 70,000 red tulips and created this uh, field of tulips. And I don't know, but uh, people feel very easy there. And they think, oh, that's our surroundings. Oh, that's our tulips. So that gives um, kind of a freshness or a kind of fun and kind of a well, identity and kind of a meaning of the place. And that is fun. If you take uh, Sigmund Freud, he says a joke is when things come together that physically don't belong together. And that, well, evokes energy. And energy is good and makes you laugh. And energy is uh, fun. So that would be probably the answer. It's the last to bring things together that not really belong together. I mean, the, well, you can go back in history of art and uh, talk about surrealism, the um, encounter of a sewing machine, and what was it? I forgot. Who was it? Mallarmé brought two unbelievable things together, a parapluie and a an umbrella and a sewing machine, exactly. That uh, By that he defined surrealism. So there's quite something behind it, and, and Freud as well. What makes you laugh? It's um, the strangeness of a situation, or the strangeness of things coming together. These urban blocks, extremely dense, and some of them grey, people living in a dense community, and then having a incredible amount of red tulips well that um, um, well that gives energy have they bloomed yet yeah so this is the first season the first season I can show you not in telegram but I can show you <laughs> photographs of the and then uh, red and we didn't start the office by saying well we like red we do red jobs I mean it's not about it's not a PR gag, public liberation gag, but uh, somehow we always come back to this uh, aspect of red. Why? I don't know. I'm wearing a red pullover today. Why is it? Is it about color and the juxtaposition of strange things coming together? Maybe. Well, color is, um, is one aspect or one possibility of bringing uh, strange things together. When do you know when to introduce color? You use it quite often in your work and it yeah. it becomes a real framing tool. We didn't know until Giro in the book we gave out made this wonderful article about uh, who is Rosa Krebs' partner, what, what's special for them. And he said, oh, it's the way they use color. 
So we were quite astonished to have someone from the outside, a friend, looking from the outside at what we do, telling us, ah, guys, the color, that's what makes uh, your projects. And it's not the soft, mellow, pinkish colors that um, amalgamate, but it's the orange coming out like a trumpet, or it's the red color coming up, or it's the combination of um, orange and gray, the contrast of colors. What would happen to your work if that color disappeared? Gee, if that color would disappear, hmm, well, would we use another color? No, no, Maybe. no. <laughs> if, if, if the aspect of color, if the extreme color disappeared, if the extreme color you could disappear. no longer use that, or it became erased or wore off of your project. Well, color, of course, uh, can die out, and there's not only color. Color is uh, is the the first layer of. Um, well, of, of visibility, but then of course different things show up. We've started the, the little conversation about Kramer. I mean, he um, comes up with um, very distinct aspects of, well, earth and water, and um, probably that's what it's all about. I mean, our profession is about dealing topography, so it's about earth, and um, it's about the rain coming down from the sky. Where does the water go? How does it, how is it collected? How is it reintegrated into the soil? And then the third aspect is how do you as a person or as a subject um, sense these aspects of topography and water? So that would be uh, an answer without any, um, without um, uh, any colors. Your body of work uses a series of strategies. Among them, sensitizing senses. I take this from your monograph. Staging perception. Constructing social territories. And I'll add inciting fun. However, Coming back to your monograph, you've chosen, with just a couple of exceptions, to omit any photos of people enjoying your landscapes. Why? That we discussed with our photographer. I mean, uh, it's for our own, own fun, that's uh, for sure. But uh, photographers just don't like to see people in gardens or in architecture. And that's a mistake. As um, gardens are done for people and people are the ones enjoying. Well, there's one exception in the, in the book that uh, we particularly like because it's not um, done by an architectural photographs. That's the Latin area. You only see the people. River edge park. The River Edge Park. And these photos are, I find, some of the most successful. 
they're in extremely successful and you see dogs and you see people smoking playing guitar and so forth and it's not about design but it's about well the the design people sit on the design people don't even realize but they use it in a good way so i hope there's more photographs with lifting atmosphere and with uh, people enjoying and not only the photographer and me or us as designers enjoying. So the photographer had a pretty strong role in which photos were to represent your sure. firm. If you were here, how would you how would you set up debate the with him? <laughs> yes. Oh, I'd uh, tell him that he did good photographs and um, they are accepted by the journals and by the um, um, by the reviews, but um, I would tell him very frankly that, um, well, we do tell him very frankly, but he's not, well, he's not uh, an extreme photographer in the sense he, um, he only wants to have it five o'clock in the morning, gray and black. So he brings out the aspects that are important to us, but there could be a little more people in these pictures. You're right. I'll tell him. <laughs> in closing, because I know you need to get to an appointment, how do you see the work of Rotzler Krebs partner evolving in the years to come? And is this Kramer exhibition a marking point, a transition point in your career? I don't think it is. It's been uh, important to go through this Kramer story again for me personally. And um, it could be interesting for the office because, um, well, we did quite some, well, we had quite some discussions about uh, this way of, of designing projects, of reducing, and that is important in an office. If you do everything and you do it at the same time, then your hour probably has come to disappear. But as, uh, as long as you're distinctive and you can express what you do and can reduce it to not 50 things at the same time, but maybe three or four, and create a good relation between these um, <clears throat> main issues, then you're on a good track. And I hope you're still on a good track and I'll have to think about what you ask me. There's two or three questions <laughs> that uh, well, will keep me running or keep us running. And that's good. It's never finished. There's always a new project. There's always a new voice, there's always new aspects, and um, there's a lot more aspects to come, I think, for me and for my partners. Thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. For me too. Thanks, Greg. You are listening to Terrograms, and our guest was the Swiss-German landscape architect Stefan Rutzler. 
Thank you for joining us for the 28th Dispatch of Terrograms. Terrograms must rely exclusively on contributions from listeners like you. Your support will assure that you, your colleagues, studio, faculty body, students and classmates can continue to benefit from our growing and open archive as well as our forthcoming discussions. If you have enjoyed the Terrograms initiative and are looking forward to our upcoming dispatches, go to our homepage at terrograms.com and select Donate. This will lead you to the PayPal site for an online contribution. Otherwise, please contact me directly at info at for alternate forms or methods of support. All donations count. Please help. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at terrograms.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Thanks to Merete Windham for her help in research and dispatch preparation. Special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at thebooksmusic.com. Join us soon for a conversation with Chinese landscape architect Kong Jian Yu. This concludes our 28th dispatch of telegrams. Thank you for listening. Another job, and I also have a heart condition, and I told him I have a heart condition. I said, here, take a few dollars. I'm sorry this happened to you, Just, but just leave me alone. I'm not the person who, who deposited us. By myself, April, Tammy, and Brad. Rainbow, 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 rainbow